Hi everyone, welcome to Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. I'm your host, Foz Lady, and today we're going to be talking to an ER doctor who's been working on the front lines during this pandemic. So, let's get into it. Hi, this is Dr. Massey from Sebastian, Florida. I'm an emergency physician with over 25 years of experience. I'm board certified in emergency medicine and internal medicine, and presently the director of the emergency department in Sebastian, Florida. Um, Indian River County is in the midst of a huge uh, surge of coronavirus cases, and I'm here today to talk with Foz about this. Hi, Dr. Massey. Thank you so much for being on these front lines. So can you give us a brief description of like what your job is and what you do every day? Sure. I'm a frontline emergency room physician. I see patients uh, at least once or twice a week, um, probably about 20 patients each day. Um, in the emergency department. In addition to that, I also manage the medical side of the emergency department at two hospitals. Uh, that takes up about two days a week of my time. Okay, cool. So adding on to that, can you describe what a day looks like for you during COVID-19? Yeah, COVID has completely changed how we practice. And when we arrive to the hospital, the first thing we do before I even go into the hospital is put on a mask and typically we will try and use the highest quality mask that we can find that's available at that time. Uh, when people wear masks in public, the purpose of that is to protect other people. When I enter the hospital, the purpose of the mask that I'm wearing is to protect myself in addition to protecting other people. Um, our temperature is checked every day upon arrival. If someone has a fever, they are not allowed to work that day in case they are infected with coronavirus. Um, and that uh, is the beginning of our day. After that, for every patient encounter, we have to assume that each patient is infected. Uh, that's the only way for us to be safe. So for every patient encounter, I will put on goggles um, or a face mask, uh, a regular mask, and gloves at minimum. If the patient has significant respiratory symptoms, I will also wear a gown that is disposable that I will remove immediately upon leaving the patient's room. Okay, now that we're starting to talk about COVID-19, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced when you were dealing with it? There's no question that nationwide, the biggest challenge that we face right now is inadequate testing. Uh, there is a still, unfortunately, not enough testing capability in the country to test everybody that needs to be tested. So we do a lot of work to figure out who should be tested for COVID. And then the second problem that we face is the turnaround time for the results. If you do have a swab done for coronavirus, it takes a minimum of four hours and most commonly between three to six days to get the result back. So that creates huge complications because by the time you get the result, you've already had to do other things uh, for the patient or with the patient. And similarly, if that patient is not admitted to the hospital and they go home, there's a potential for them to infect other people during that time period while you're waiting for the result to come back. Okay, so what, adding on to that, what are some of like, the changes that your hospital made besides like wearing masks to like, adapt to COVID-19? Sure. One of the unfortunate things that we had to do was restrict visitors to the hospital. And we know that uh, there are a lot of asymptomatic people in the community. And uh, we, in April, decided to not allow any visitors into the hospital at all. And that obviously creates you know, a lot of sad situations for families. If you have a loved one who's sick in the hospital, 
if someone is at a, if there's a life and death situation, we will let them come in. <clears throat> Certainly for pediatric patients, we'll let them come in. And when the coronavirus had seemed to have dropped down a little bit, we had started allowing one visitor per patient. Um, but in the last few weeks, unfortunately, we've had to gone back to, uh, again, go back to no visitors at all, simply to limit the number of bodies inside the hospital. The cafeteria has stopped uh, serving any uh, common foods. The salad bar, for example, has been closed since March. Uh, there's nothing, everything is single use. We don't use any real silverware. There's very few things in the hospital that multiple people are allowed to touch. It's all single use. And we have obviously gone through a lot more gloves and masks than one normally would. Okay, that's really informative. So what are some of the symptoms that you're seeing in COVID patients that you're dealing with? So that's also changed drastically over the last seven months, probably. Uh, we know that the coronavirus family of viruses are respiratory viruses that cause, you know, usually just the common cold. So we certainly think of any respiratory symptoms as being indicative of possible COVID, uh, the most common being fever, cough, and shortness of breath. Unfortunately, over the last few months now, we've also come to realize that a lot of people have other symptoms, including just a runny nose, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea, which can also be indicative of COVID infection. And the, the, unfortunately, right now in the younger population, we have a very large number of people who are completely asymptomatic. And so they will have no symptoms, but they are shedding uh, virus particles with every breath that they take that's not masked. Okay, so if someone has any of these symptoms or suspects that they have COVID, how do they get tested? So there are um, multiple routes to getting tested. <clears throat> if someone is sick enough that they wish to receive medical care, they can certainly go to their local emergency department and be tested as part of their work up there. If the physician feels after examining the patient and talking to them that this looks suspicious for COVID, certainly the emergency department will perform the test right there and then. Other than that, the person uh, can go to various testing sites. There are multiple testing sites throughout uh, Brevard County and Indian River County uh, where people can go um, and uh, get, get themselves tested. Uh, the results are then sent out to a large local lab and the results are usually back within five to 10 days in going that route. If you get tested through the hospital, Depending on how sick someone is, we can get the result back between four hours and 24 hours. Okay, so if someone does test positive, what should they be doing? So the most important thing, obviously, is to take care of the patient first. So if someone has a, a severe COVID infection, they will often have pneumonia. And then we have to decide based on their physical exam and objective findings like x-rays and CAT scans and things like that, if they are sick enough to be in the hospital or not. And unfortunately, a lot of these people do end up being sick enough to be in the hospital. They require large amounts of oxygen. Um, they require a lot of specialized care. Uh, so those are, the, those are the sick patients. Fortunately, there is a large number of people who are infected with COVID who do not require hospitalization. And the most important thing that they need to do, in my opinion, is to socially isolate themselves and what we call self-quarantine at home. So they are not spreading the infection further to other people. Ideally, they would isolate themselves to you know, not interacting with people even in their own home, because there may be people in their own home who are not yet infected. 
and it would be important to protect them from the sick person. And obviously outside of that, they should remain home except for essential activities only. For example, if they need to go to the pharmacy, they can go to the pharmacy. But other than that, they should just stay home so they're not spreading the infection in the community. Okay, now that we're starting to talk about people's personal lives, what were some of the biggest things that surprised you about how society as a whole reacted to COVID-19? Unfortunately, in our community here, we initially did not have many cases of COVID-19. So in the middle of March, when there was mass hysteria throughout the country, we saw hundreds of people dying in New York City. We saw refrigerator trucks full of corpses because the hospital morgues had filled up. Uh, everybody was very scared and nervous at that time, and people took all the appropriate precautions at that time and willingly self-isolated and were very cautious about their behaviors. Uh, but over the next two to three months, we saw virtually no significant number of cases in this county. As a result of that, people became mentally fatigued with this whole uh, self uh, quarantining and all social isolation and all these things when there really did not appear to be a threat. And so when Governor DeSantis lifted a lot of those restrictions, uh, people started to carry on their normal lives. And just like kids who have been locked up in school, when it's recess time, everybody went out to play. And unfortunately, this has led now to the significant spread of this uh, virus in our community. Uh, so we are now experiencing a surge in our community when we kind of dodged the bullet early on. And that uh, would be the one thing that um, I wish their people were better at was uh, being more responsible with their behavior to try and prevent further spread of this disease. Okay, now that we're starting to talk about hospitals opening up and states like Florida becoming the new hotspots of the coronavirus, how did this affect your hospital? We, as I said to a lot of the physicians who I work with, we are now seeing in this county what New York saw in March and April. And we are now seeing in this county what we expected in March and April. And every hospital in Florida back in March had put up a tent outside their emergency department. We were ready for a huge onslaught of cases that never came. And we are now seeing that. And on an average day, we are seeing probably five to six patients per day in our emergency department uh, that are have COVID infection. And not all of them require uh, hospitalization. The majority of them are probably sent home to self-isolate, but we see every day, you know, at least five to six people with coronavirus infection. Okay, so currently the vaccine's being developed and many people think that when it comes out, it's gonna bring some sort of an end to the pandemic. Do, what effects do you believe the vaccine will have and do you believe that'll end the pandemic? So the, really the only thing that's going to help us with this situation is going to be a successful vaccine. The problem that we face is that not all vaccines are perfectly successful. Data that I've looked at and trials that are ongoing right now uh, show that the current vaccines that are being trialed do not provide complete immunity from COVID, but rather attenuate the disease. So if, for example, you receive the vaccine and you are then infected by the, by the coronavirus, you would have a less severe case of the illness than if you had not had the vaccine and you would shed fewer virus particles with every breath that you take. So your ability to infect other people would be decreased, but it would not completely protect you from coronavirus. 
So unless there's something new, at least as of last week when I was looking at this, the only vaccines that are out there right now are simply uh, successful at attenuating the disease rather than preventing it completely. Okay. And even after this pandemic ends, do you think there'll be effects that will continue to last? And what do you think those effects will be? Unfortunately, I do think that this is going to change how we live our life. You know, we look back in time and there are certain events that happen that completely change how we live. And uh, those of us who are old enough, you know, will remember when 9-11 happened in New York and air travel has never been the same since then and it never will be in the future. And similarly, after a pandemic of this severity, which will probably go on for about two years, uh, our lives will never be the same. People will always, be, I believe, be much more cautious in public areas. I suspect we will see mask use significantly in the future. People will use a lot more hand sanitizer. People will be a lot more cautious about public spaces. And we watched the uh, Asian countries after the SARS epidemic use masks all the time. If you go to, I was in Beijing a few years ago, people in the street all wear masks. And it's a holdover from the SARS epidemic. Plus some people say for air pollution also, but I mean, a lot of it's for, you know, SARS epidemic driven. And that's become part of their life now. And I suspect that we will see some of that in our society. If you think of a place like Disney World, for example, the experience of Disney World will never be the same in the future. They will never pack people into those lines as closely as they did, allow people to go and every person who wants to go and hug, you know, Cinderella. If your kid wants to go hug Cinderella, you can go hug Cinderella. Those kind of things are always going to be different in the future. Okay, that's really informative. So now we have some questions from some like the podcast listeners. Um, so the first one is, how did you and your family deal with you living in such a high risk like area and environment? That's a very important uh, issue. In fact, a good friend of mine who's a nurse in Illinois, she was not able to see her parents uh, for a number of months because she works in the healthcare field and they were concerned about her bringing the infection home. And situations like that make it hard. I have a doctor who works with me. She lived in their motorhome uh, rather than go into the house and possibly infect someone or people rented hotel rooms. Um, I just uh, you know, tried to do the best precautions that I could take. Uh, the first thing I do when I come home is immediately take off the clothes that I had worn at the hospital and take a shower. I will not touch anybody in the house until that is completed. Um, just being very careful with uh, personal contacts. Okay, the next one is, how do you believe people in the U.S. and other countries around the world can be more prepared for a pandemic like this in the future? Unfortunately, the, uh, to prepare for something like this is up until now has really sort of been unprecedented. I think that the experiences over the last year are going to help the government um, and larger bodies like the World Health Organization and things kind of anticipate and prepare for something like this in the future. Um, the, uh, we need to have the CDC, for example, could have been more ready, I believe, uh, to ramp up testing immediately. Uh, we could have, we now will definitely have a better path to vaccines uh, once a new uh, threat comes on the horizon. And I suspect that there will probably be um, future pandemics also from viruses, particularly viruses around the world. I think that uh, supply chains for masks and things, people had kept their inventories very lean and uh, the supply chains are going to be ramped up so hospitals have a larger and a deeper 
uh, inventory of personal protective equipment. And, and those are some of the changes that I think are coming in the future. Okay, and the third question is, do you believe that schools should be opening up in the, in the fall? And if they are, what precautions should they be taking? Whether or not to open schools is, I personally believe, is a decision that should be made by each individual community based on the prevalence of the disease in that community. If you live in an area where the prevalence is extremely low, I think it's reasonable to um, allow children to go back to school with appropriate social distancing, maybe staggered starts or some communities that are talking about doing half of the school in the morning, half of the school in the afternoon. So there are half as many bodies inside the building and allowing enough room to socially distance. Uh, but certainly if you're in a very, in a community with a very high concentration of disease to send children back to school would be foolishness because you're just, we all know that, uh, you know, children are, whatever large number of children gathered, the disease is spread very easily. Well, that's everything I have to ask you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to answer these questions. Absolutely. My pleasure, Faz. Thank you. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. I'll see you next week with another interview.